I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the court's recent opinions, and Elizabeth chatted with Second Circuit Judge Mike Park. So before we get into the latest opinions, I wanted to mention that this is our last episode together. As you all know, Tiffany left the Heritage Foundation a couple of years ago and is now at a firm in D.C. I will also be leaving Heritage to head to the Pacific Legal Foundation. So I want to thank you, all of our wonderful listeners, for tuning in to hear what we have to say, for all the emails and tweets over the years, and especially for those who bought SCOTUS 101 mugs. They're still available on shop.heritage.org, so please go get one if you don't have one. And if you'd like to hear what we're up to in the future, I'd encourage you to follow both of us on Twitter. I'm at E.H. Slattery, and Tiffany is at Tiffany H. Bates. Yeah, we've really enjoyed starting and growing this podcast together over the last few years, and we're so appreciative to all of our listeners and supporters and fellow SCOTUS nerds, of course. Um, So thank you, and we're both really going to miss you. But fear not, the show must go on, so in the coming weeks, I will be introducing you to the new hosts of SCOTUS 101. So with that brief note, now we'll get into what's going on at the court. Uh, So the court has moved many of the March and April arguments to its next term. It will hear argument by telephone in early May in a handful of cases, and those include uh, the case involving the House Committee's attempt to subpoena President Trump's tax returns, uh, the long-suffering Little Sisters of the Poor, and McGirt versus Oklahoma, in which a criminal defendant is challenging his conviction on the grounds that half of Oklahoma is actually Indian country. So it'll be really interesting to see how these tele-arguments go. I know courts across the country, some are implementing them and some are going well and some are going not so well. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how the court handles these. Lisa Blatt from Williams and Connolly is the first lawyer up for a telephone argument. I think that was a good choice given her extensive argument experience. I believe she's approaching 40 Supreme Court arguments. So if anyone's going to... Um, introduce the court to these new things and be comfortable doing that, um, it is certainly her. Definitely. So the court issued six opinions this week, and we're going to hit some of the highlights. Uh, So first up is Ramos versus Louisiana. And it was a fractured opinion. And can I just say, I wish SCOTUS would give us a chart with the vote breakdown because it was a Gorsuch majority opinion that Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kavanaugh joined in some parts, but not in other parts. But ultimately, the court held that the Sixth Amendment's right to a jury trial, as incorporated against the states through the 14th Amendment, requires a unanimous jury verdict for someone to be convicted of a serious crime. So in this case, Evangelisto Ramos was convicted of second-degree murder by a 10-2 vote of a jury in Louisiana. At the time of his conviction, only Louisiana and Oregon allowed for conviction of a serious crime absent a unanimous jury verdict. So the other 48 states and the federal courts all required unanimous jury verdicts for conviction. Ramos was sentenced to life in prison, and he appealed, arguing that the non-unanimous verdict violated his right to a jury trial under the Sixth Amendment. So the Supreme Court had previously upheld the constitutionality of non-unanimous state jury verdicts in a case called Apodaca versus Oregon in 1972. That was another fractured ruling. But now the court has decided that that precedent was mistaken and it should not be preserved on the basis of stare decisis. So Justice Gorsuch joined by Ginsburg and Breyer 
in part uh, 4A of the opinion, they would have gone farther and said that given the fractured nation of the Apodaca decision, it lacked any precedential value. And then Gorsuch joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor in parts 4B2 and part five, stated that Louisiana and Oregon's reliance interests in the security of uh, the finality of their criminal judgments was not enough to uphold the Apodaca decision. Justice Thomas concurred in the judgment, and he argued that the Sixth Amendment's prohibition on non-unanimous jury verdicts applies against the states through the Privileges or Immunities Clause rather than the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's uh, not the first time he he has um, has brought up the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but it seems that not many of the other justices are interested in going that route for incorporation. Justice Sotomayor concurred in the judgment, except as to part 4A, we really need to get out our scorecard here to follow along with what the justices were doing. Uh, she wrote that overruling prior precedent was compelled in this case and that the racially biased origins of Louisiana and Oregon's laws allowing non-unanimous jury verdicts was it uniquely important here. Okay, moving on. Justice Kavanaugh concurred explaining, uh, setting out his roadmap for how the court should approach when it's going to overrule one of its precedents. So Kavanaugh says, first, the court should ask if the case was egregiously wrong. Second, uh, has it caused significant negative jurisprudential or real world consequences? And finally, would overruling it upset reliance interests? And he felt that uh, all of these questions led to overruling the Apodaca decision. Okay, moving to the dissent. Justice Alito, joined by the Chief Justice John Roberts and Elena Kagan, dissented. Uh, they did not join um, one part of his uh, of his dissent, but uh, he wrote that the doctrine of stare decisis was getting rough treatment in this majority opinion. Uh, so they would not have overruled Apodaca. Alito wrote that whatever one may think about the correctness of that decision, it has elicited enormous and entirely reasonable reliance. He also pointed out that the majority's decision has little practical importance because Louisiana had already abolished non-unanimous jury verdicts and Oregon was on uh, on the road to do the same. Uh, so not particularly surprising that Alito dissented here. Uh, it's not often that he votes in favor of criminal defendants. Also, Justice Kagan is continuing to be the chief cheerleader in favor of stare decisis, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts is also a pretty big fan of, of that as well. And as a disclosure, my firm was involved in that case. Um, but next up, we have Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund. Um, we talked about this case before in the argument. Um, in this case, Maui ran a water waste treatment plant. And so they treat the water waste and put it into underground wells. And some of that gets into the groundwater and then eventually runs into the Pacific Ocean. So some environmental groups sued, arguing that Maui needs a permit under the Clean Water Act to do this. In a six to three opinion written by Justice Breyer, joined by the chief, Kavanaugh, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg, the court held that the Clean Water Act forbids both direct and indirect discharges of a pollutant from a point source into a navigable water. So the court said that Maui was, in essence, dumping a pollutant from a point source into a navigable water, which was the ocean in this case. Justice Breyer explained that the relevant Clean Water Act term is the word from a point source, which applies where there is a direct discharge from a point source into navigable waters or when there is a functional equivalent of a direct discharge. The court listed several factors that are relevant to making that determination. 
Um, time and distance are generally the most important factors. So Justice Kavanaugh concurred in this opinion, which I thought was a little bit unexpected. Um, but he believed that the decision was consistent with a prior decision um, called Rapinos versus United States, which is a 2006 opinion by Justice Scalia. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, dissented. And their view, the Clean Water Act regulates only direct discharges and not indirect ones. Um, Justice Alito also dissented, writing that the majority opinion left the lower courts without a lot of guidance to determine what the term from means. He said that the court basically told the lower courts, quote, that's your problem. Muddle through it best you can. Um, Sassy Justice Alito. Yeah. The court also decided um, Barton versus Barr. The question here was whether a lawfully admitted permanent resident who is not seeking admission to the U.S. can be rendered inadmissible for purposes of the stop time rule. So generally speaking, a green card holder won't be deported if he's lived in the United States continuously for seven years. Um, but what's known as the stop time rule, um, under that rule, the period of continuous residence ends if he commits an offense that would render him inadmissible. So Justice Kavanaugh had this opinion and it was joined by the chief, Justice Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch. And the court affirmed the 11th Circuit here, holding that the commission of felonies by a lawful permanent alien within his first seven years of residence in the U.S., made him inadmissible and thus ineligible for cancellation of removal proceedings. So the defendant here, Barton, was convicted of numerous state crimes, including firearms and drug offenses, over a 12-year period. Uh, and then an immigration judge found him ineligible for cancellation of his removal. Um, among those requirements for cancellation, as I just mentioned, is continuous residence um, in the U.S. for seven years. But the stop time rule um, says that an alien's continuous residence ends when he commits a crime outlined in that statute. So Barton argued that he was eligible for cancellation because he was not convicted until after the seven years had passed. But the court held that the statutory text and structure is straightforward and applied to Barton because he committed the offenses during the seven year period, even if he wasn't convicted until later. The court concluded that the statutory text uses the term inadmissibility as a status that can result from an already admitted permanent resident alien's commission of certain crimes. Sotomayor uh, dissented, joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan, claiming that the majority was conflating being inadmissible with being deportable. And um, they thought that Barton could not be considered inadmissible under the stop time rule because he had already been admitted to the country. They said the government would have to show, in their view, that he committed an offense that made him deportable. It seems like there's never an end to these types of cases going up to the Supreme Court. So I, I definitely don't envy the justices when they have to deal with one of these um, challenging immigration cases. Uh, so moving on, the court released a couple of decisions earlier in April. I wanted to highlight one. It's Kansas versus Glover. This was a 7-1 decision by Justice Thomas. The court reversed an opinion by the Kansas Supreme Court and held that a police officer does not violate the Fourth Amendment by initiating an investigative traffic stop after running a vehicle's license plate 
and learning that the registered owner has a revoked driver's license uh, where the officer lacks information negating an inference that the owner is the driver of the vehicle. So what happened here was a police officer was out on a routine patrol, and for whatever reason, he maybe he was bored, I don't know, he decided to run a particular car's license plate and learned that the registered owner of that vehicle had a revoked driver's license. So based solely on that information, he initiated a traffic stop. So this resulted in the state prosecuting the petitioner in this case as a habitual traffic offender for driving with a revoked license. Uh, And he filed a motion to suppress all evidence seized during the stop, claiming the officer lacked reasonable suspicion to initiate that stop. The trial court in Kansas granted that motion and uh, on appeal, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed that. So in reversing, the U.S. Supreme Court said the officer's common sense inference that the registered owner of the vehicle was likely its driver provided more than reasonable suspicion to initiate a traffic stop. But the court made clear that absent evidence to the contrary, the fact that the registered owner of a vehicle is not always its driver does not negate the reasonableness of the investigatory stop. So Justice Kagan concurred, joined by Justice Ginsburg, Uh, And she emphasized that she might have decided the case differently if the petitioner's license had been suspended rather than revoked. And she went through uh, that many states uh, suspend licenses for a variety of infractions, which in some cases might result in an individual not knowing about the suspension. But since the revocation indicated the petitioner repeatedly was flouting Kansas's driving laws, she agreed with the majority and found that there had been no Fourth Amendment violation. Justice Sotomayor dissented, stating her view that uh, reasonable suspicion did not exist for this stop and that the majority had, quote, paved the road to finding reasonable suspicion based on nothing more than a demographic profile. So uh, one thing that's noteworthy is that this was the Kansas Attorney General's third SCOTUS case of the term and third win. So not bad for uh, for their new uh, state solicitor general. The court also granted one new case this week that it will hear in its next term. It's Van Buren versus United States. And the issue is whether a person who is authorized to access information on a computer for certain purposes violates a provision of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act if he accesses the same information uh, for an improper purpose. Also from the orders list this week, the court denied the motion of the Solicitor General for leave to participate uh, in in an oral argument next next term, which I thought was kind of rare. Typically, when the SG's office asks for divided argument time, the court grants it. Uh, and this was in the Ford Motor Company versus Bandemir. And um, a friend of the podcast, Sean Murata, is uh, the 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 lawyer for for Ford Motor Company in the case. So perhaps we'll have to chat with Sean and find find out uh, why the SG's motion was denied in this case. Yeah, I don't think that the court has denied a motion like this in over a decade, um, which is really interesting. I wonder how they go about doing that. Maybe they didn't think the federal government has enough of an interest in this case. I don't know what goes into making that decision, but it's definitely unusual. Yeah. Well, moving on, I recently spoke with Michael Park, who is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. So first off, how are you holding up? You're in New York City. So are you holed up in your home or are you still headed into your chambers? I'm actually not in New York City right now. I'm in Iowa City uh, where my wife is a law professor here. Um, And so we came out here about five or six weeks ago. 
Um, and so things are a little bit better here than in New York. Um, most of the work of Chambers is going on um, mostly as usual. We're all remote um, and arguments are obviously different. They're being done by phone. Um, mm -hmm. But the day-to-day -day is still moving along. So you, your, your court hasn't tried a Zoom argument yet? No, we, we've gone to telephone. Um, and <laughs> I was uh, one of the first uh, judges on, on the, or one of the first panels that, that did that. And, um, I, I think it worked okay. There were some hiccups and, um, you know, it's not perfect, but it's a pretty good substitute, I think, under the circumstances. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you all were able to uh, flee the city and, and head to Iowa. So let's turn to your career. So following law school, you clerked for then Judge Alito on the Third Circuit, and then you clerked for him a second time after he was appointed to the Supreme Court. So tell me about some of the highlights of those clerkships. Well, it was a real honor to clerk for Justice Alito and to have someone like that as a mentor. Um, I've been thinking back these days, trying to remember how he used to do things um, on the <laughs> Third Circuit as I try to figure out what I'm doing now. Um, and... One of the things I remember is he would go around the office and pull reporters off the shelves when he was researching and reading. And I remember his writing was always clear and simple and to the point. Um, and one thing I also remember is that he cared a lot about his law clerks, like to the point of worrying. Um, he would get the U.S. Attorney's Office to let us use their shuttle when we were going from the courthouse to Penn Station in Newark um, if it was dark. Um, he told us to try not to commute when it was snowing. Um, little things like that are the things that I remember. <laughs> so is there something about Justice Alito that you could share that people may not know about him? Hmm. Um, well, I, I think he's funnier than people might think. Um, uh, so I remember one time I was being kind of a wise guy, and uh, I sent an email to him saying something like, I'm going to put in my FaceTime today electronically. And I attached a headshot myself. <laughs> um, and the next time I came down to see him, he had printed it out and drawn a mustache on my face and then posted it on his door. And so, you know, he had a great sense of humor and it was a lot of fun working for him. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so then you also worked in the Office of Legal Counsel during the Bush administration. So tell me about that experience. Well, OLC is a great office. Um, it has some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And, you know, they work on some of the, the most important and hardest legal issues of the day um, all the time. And so for a young lawyer like me um, to get to work on sexy constitutional issues like uh, separation of powers and commander in chief authority, that's a pretty special experience. Um, there were some less glamorous issues, like I remember the uh, Miscellaneous Receipts Act and Anti-Deficiency Act. Um, <laughs> those are still interesting for, you know, you have to be kind of a hardcore law nerd, but uh, that's not what most people go to law school for. But um, OLC is really a fantastic office, and it was a great experience for me as a young lawyer. So then after your time in government, you spent some time at a big firm before joining Consboy McCarthy when it was about a year old. So what was it like going from big law to uh, a startup boutique firm? Yeah, well, you know, I got a lot of great training in big law. Um, but working at a startup was 
just a lot more exciting. It's, it's entrepreneurial. Um, you know, you're, you're growing a business and that was especially fun to do with, um, some great friends. Um, one hard thing was learning to do everything myself. I remember spending a lot of time at Staples, you know, making my own binders and sending my own papers. Um, but at the same time, I was running a lot of my own cases and going to court way more than I would have if I had stayed at a big firm. Um, so there's pros and cons, but I loved it. And I thought it was going to be my forever job. <laughs> until you got a promotion. <laughs> so yeah, until I, may I got have... a new forever job. <laughs> I may have asked some of your former partners for Intel, and I understand there's uh, a story about throwing someone's coffee cup out and also your uh, preference for Microsoft Outlook. Yeah, so um, the, the, so the first story uh, was actually when I was clicking at the Supreme Court. Um, I like to keep a very clean and organized office, and one of my future law partners um, had visited one day and left behind um, an old, dirty, like coffee stained mug. And so when I found it, I figured it was, it looked like trash. So I just threw it out. Um, but it turned out to be like one of his favorite mugs. And it, you know, I think it was had something to do with the movie Office Space. And so I, I felt bad and I got him something that I thought looked you know, pretty similar, but I guess he still hasn't forgiven me if he's still talking about it. <laughs> um, and uh, as, as for Outlook, um, that, that's funny too. Um, you know, one of the things at the new firm was that we had a, uh, an Apple-based work environment and, and we used Google-based email. And for me, I had used uh, PCs and Microsoft Outlook for my entire career for everything, email, calendar, contacts. Um, so I had a really hard time adjusting and I complained uh, a lot, like a broken record for a long time <laughs> to everybody about this. And, uh, you know, finally got used to it. But the funny thing is that when I came to the second circuit, I was back to Outlook. That's what we use now. And when I started, I didn't want to go back and um, I figured it out now. Uh, so it's all okay, but um, I'm still using an Apple laptop and iPad. So I guess my preferences have changed. <laughs> now, do you all still use WordPerfect? I've heard that the, the judiciary has not moved beyond that yet. We uh, use Word mostly now. Um, I have heard that there are still folks who do use WordPerfect um, and Lotus Notes, um, but I, I think that that is being phased out or there is an effort <laughs> to try to phase it out. Uh, we do still use fax machines as well, which is... Um, I thought it was endearing at first. Now it's a little bit more embarrassing than endearing. But um, with everybody working remotely, um, I, I think that may be uh, something that nobody is doing anymore. We don't want. I can't imagine many people, things. yeah, have um, fax machines in their home offices. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, shifting gears. Uh, so you and your wife, who you mentioned is is a professor at the University of Iowa's law school. Uh, you have a multi-poo named, is it Grimkey? Yes. So Grimkey. now is the dog uh, named after the abolitionist? Yes. Uh, so Grimkey was named after Sarah and Angelina Grimkey, who are, uh, were abolitionist feminist sisters in the Civil War era. Um, She's a regular in Chambers, and uh, she loves it. Um, 
I dress her up in collared shirts most days, and it's fun. I think I think everyone in chambers, um, and and most of our visitors enjoy being greeted by her. Do you have a like a judicial robe for her? <laughs> Not yet, but that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that that would be that would be a hit, I'm sure, in the office and in chambers. Uh, well, shifting gears again. So you, I read that you've been involved with um, a nonprofit called Operation Exodus in New York City that offers after-school tutoring and mentoring to underprivileged kids. So can you tell me a little bit about Operation Exodus and how you got involved with them? Yeah, well, um, it's a great program. And like you described, it's, uh, it offers after-school uh, tutoring and mentoring for um, kids, mostly Latino kids. Um, started out in the Washington Heights area. Um, it's grown since then. Um, I got involved um, uh, after law school through church um, with some friends from law school, and we were looking for a way to volunteer um, after we got into the city. Um, and so for a couple of years, we went on Saturday mornings up to Washington Heights to teach and mentor um, elementary school kids, and it was a lot of fun. Um, more recently, uh, I had an opportunity to serve on the board um, and helped with some legal issues like photo, photocopy releases and things like that. Um, but uh, it's, it's a great program and I've been privileged to be a part of it. So now speaking of law school classmates, I read that at your roving ceremony after you became a judge on the second circuit, one of your classmates shared a story about your karaoke skills. I think that he said there was a particular sync song that you liked to, to sing in karaoke. So can you? Oh man, where, where are you reading this stuff? And <laughs> I have my sources. Um, okay, so it was the summer of 2000. Uh, I was crashing with some college friends in the city for uh, about a month. And every morning as we were getting ready for work, we would pop in this VHS tape uh, that one of us got from McDonald's. And it had the music video for uh, bye, bye, bye. And so I learned all of the lyrics and dance moves that summer. And, uh, when I got back to campus, there were some events towards the end of the year, um, at the end of law school where I got to showcase my skills. Um, it was, it was funny. I was actually thinking about this recently, um, because it's, it's, it's tough that graduating students right now, you know, aren't going to have the chance to go to end of the year events like class banquets and, you know, senior proms and graduation because um, it was one of those events where I did my song and dance, which probably the most memorable thing I did in law school. <laughs> that's, that's great. So now um, shifting gears to, you know, now you're a judge. Are there things that you like to do with your clerks or are there traditions you're hoping to start with them? Um, perhaps karaoke? <laughs> that's a good idea, although. I don't want to deter any uh, potential applicants. Um, so this is my first group of law clerks, and um, they are great. Um, we usually have lunch together a couple times a week, um, but obviously things have gotten socially derailed uh, now because of everything that's happening. So, um, you know, I hope we'll be back before too long. I don't have any traditions yet, um, but um, I am open to ideas, and I will consider karaoke. I, I think that that would be a, a huge selling point for applying for a clerkship with with, with you, definitely. Um, so I know you're not in your chambers currently, but uh, as you started to, you know, uh, 
put your chambers together. Is there anything that, that you have in it that reflects your personality or where you're from? Uh, well, so aside from Grimke and her dog stuff, um, I was born in Minnesota. Uh, so I have uh, some, um, I guess, things that remind me of that, um, a mini Vikings helmet uh, that I got that was signed by John Randall, uh, a twins pennant, uh, a figurine of Kevin Garnett when he was on the Timberwolves. Um, I also have a putter, two golf balls, and a little putting cup, uh, which is fun to play with um, when you're just thinking. Um, but it's good to have some non-law things around, but I'm also still in the process of setting up and furnishing still. Yeah, having the, the putter is probably a, a good way to, you know, mull things over and, you know, practice your, your short game at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, one final question, something that I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I have to say Justice Jackson. Um, he had a fascinating career. He was Solicitor General, Attorney General, uh, Supreme Court Justice, and he took a break to be uh, prosecutor at Nuremberg. Um, so I'd like to ask him about his career. Um, I'd also love to hear about how he thought about writing. Um, his opinions are famously readable and vivid, um, and so it, it'd be wonderful to have an opportunity to kind of get into his mind and understand how he thought about writing. Um, there's the steel seizure case with the three-part framework for thinking about executive power, um, his Korematsu dissent, where he got straight to the heart of the issue without being swayed by wartime circumstances. Um, really um, uh, impressive person and um, uh, great opinions that he left with us. Yeah. And also, it helps he's a New Yorker, too. <laughs> Definitely a, a great writer. I think uh, he coined the phrase that the Constitution is not a suicide pact, right? And we're, we've been hearing yeah. a lot about that in, in conversations these days. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a delight speaking with you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Dramatic Departures Edition. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, <laughs> Tiffany's in the hot seat. Are you ready for this? I guess so. Okay. So let me just say, I, while I was watching Jeopardy last night, because my husband and I watch Jeopardy almost every night, I did a deep dive through the Wikipedia page of every Supreme Court justice, which actually didn't take that long, but uh, I don't expect you to, to get all of these because some of them are pretty hard. <laughs> okay. So with that, okay, first question. This early member of the court uh, left the Supreme Court and then returned with a recess appointment to be chief justice, but the Senate rejected his appointment and he tried to drown himself. Ooh, I think I know this one. It's John Rutledge. That is correct. He was appointed twice by George Washington. And the first time he left the court uh, to go be the chief justice of the South Carolina Court of Common Pleas and Sessions, I guess in the early years of the U.S. Supreme Court, there was not that much to do. I don't think they heard any cases for the first three terms. And so uh, John Rutledge decided he would go back to South Carolina. But he he came back for a second and very, very brief tenure as chief justice, uh, recess appointed chief justice. I think it was less than um, less than 200 days. And after that, uh, that appointment was rejected by the Senate. He retired from public life. 
Okay, you're off to a good start. Second question. This justice resigned in protest following the court's decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know. Wasn't there only one justice? There were two, there were two, there were two dissenters. Okay. Uh, right. He was appointed by... Millard Fillmore. I don't know if that helps at all. <laughs> that does not help. I have no idea. Okay. It's Benjamin Robbins Curtis. And apparently he had a bitter disagreement with Chief Justice Tawney and he left the court a few months after the Dred Scott decision was issued. Okay. Well, if you're going to leave based on a decision um, that was probably uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. one to consider. Definitely. Okay. Next third question. Justice John Archibald Campbell resigned in April of 1861. Where did he go next? Oh, um, well, I know some justices in the early days when they retired went on to be like governors or senators. So I'm think I'm about the date. What is it? 18 1861. April oh, of 1861. Did he join the war? He did. A Southerner, he was appointed as Assistant Secretary of War in the Confederate government. So he was arrested and imprisoned in 1865. But after the war, he resumed his law practice uh, and set up shop in Louisiana. And he went on to argue the slaughterhouse cases before his old colleagues at the Supreme Court. Oh, interesting. That's really interesting. Okay, fourth question. Justice Ward Hunt suffered a paralyzing stroke in 1878, but he refused to retire, despite the fact that he was no longer attending sessions at the court, uh, and he also was not participating in opinions. So he finally retired four years later in 1882. What was he holding out for? Um, Probably a president from his own party to be elected and nominate someone with a similar judicial philosophy? Okay, that's a really good guess, but it actually was, he was holding out for a full pension. So (laughs) in order to receive a full pension, a justice had to be over 70 years old and have served at least 10 years on the court. Um, He did not meet both of those at the time that he had that stroke. So Congress passed a special act in 1882, granting him a full pension if he retired within 30 days, which he did. (laughs) And then uh, another justice, uh, William Henry Moody, also retired after Congress passed a special act granting him retirement benefits. So he suffered from really bad arthritis. And apparently one day he left the bench during a sitting for a brief rest and he never came back. Uh, The next month, Congress granted him a pension and he resigned. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Okay. Fifth and final question. I'm ready. This justice retired in 1967 to avoid a conflict of interest with his son. 1967, conflict of interest with his son. Oh, do you have a, do you have a clue? His, his son was appointed as attorney general. Um, you know, I'm terrible with dates. Um, <laughs> His son okay. was appointed by President Johnson as attorney general. Does that help? That help me. No. Um, okay. Was this like, was this one of the Kennedys? Uh, I don't know any 
of their relation was on the Supreme Court. <laughs> no, no. And Anthony Kennedy was not related to the the other Kennedy family. Yeah. Um, no, it was Tom Clark and uh, President Johnson appointed his son, Ramsey Clark, as attorney general. And I think Justice Clark went on uh, to be pretty heavily involved with the American Bar Association after he left the court. Uh, he had been on the court for, I think, less than 20 years, but uh, somewhere around um, around 20 years. Interesting. So, okay. Well, those were really were pretty tough, but I think very difficult. I think you did a pretty good job. But before we wrap up, um, just one one final thing. So we've asked numerous guests on the show over the years which justice they would like to have a conversation with. So I think it's time for us to answer that question. Tiffany, who would you pick for your justice dinner date? Okay. Well, I'm going to take the co-host prerogative and give more than one answer. Mm. That's usually prohibited. So first, to echo Judge Batchelder from a couple weeks ago, Justice Thomas will always be my favorite, and having dinner with him would just be a ball. Um, but I did have the privilege of having him as a professor in law school, so I'm going to give a historical justice well, too. Um, again, it's the retiring co-host, prerogative. <laughs> um, so from a more scholarly angle, I would love to talk to Joseph Story, who is the mm-hmm. youngest justice ever appointed. He was 32 when appointed, which is just two years older than I am, which is crazy. What are you Um, doing with your life, Tiffany? (laughs) But I would just love to talk to him about his um, great commentaries on the Constitution. They're such an important part of constitutional history. Um, And I just love to talk through all of that with him. Second, on the more personal level, I would really love to have dinner with Chief Justice William Howard Taft, um, because he's just such an interesting character who served in an astonishing number of positions. He was president, chief justice, solicitor general, secretary of war, governor of Cuba and the Philippines. It's just crazy. Um, But I would mostly like to ask him what he thought about Billy Possum which we talked about before, was a terrifying stuffed animal that was after him. I really want to know if he was ever jealous about the success of the teddy bear, which is named after Teddy Roosevelt, of course. And that would be my most pressing question for him. Yeah, I mean, the Billy Possum was... How can you compare with a teddy bear? Uh, the Billy Possum was truly a a frightening uh, a frightening creation, and I'm not surprised that it didn't catch on with children across America. Okay, well, this this name has been uh, other people have have said this before, but I would have to pick. John Marshall Harlan, the great dissenter, as as a Kentuckian, I, I'd have to go with a Kentuckian, um, and he was the sole dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, and also in a group of cases known as the civil rights cases that was dealing with the uh, the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And I would love to know about what the dynamic on the court was like at that time. What was his, you know, what were his relationships like with the other justices, um, you know, when he was known as this great dissenter? He also served for, I think, 33 years. Uh, so he's up there as one of the longest serving justices up there with 
you know, the likes of um, John Paul Stevens and William O. Douglas. Uh, so he served from the Reconstruction era until 1911. So what was it like serving on the court uh, in that transitional time in our in our country? Also, he's the grandfather of, of a another Supreme Court Justice, John Marshall Harlan II. And so I, you know, I'd love to know what, uh, what he, you know, if I could talk to him in heaven, what, what he thought about his grandson going on uh, to be a justice and if, if there were any uh, major ideological disagreements <laughs> uh, between their opinions. And then finally, I, I recently read that he donated um, his family Bible to the court in 1906 and that since then, um, almost every justice has signed that Bible. And so that just seems like a really special memento that the court has um, that, that Justice Harlan uh, provided for the court. So that's that's who I would want to have my, my dinner date with. Although, I mean, obviously, Justice Thomas would be up there. Justice Scalia, another one, you know, just, just to um, enjoy red wine and pizza. I think that would be, um, you know, uh, hard pressed to to have um, a better time than that, and um, a liberty destroying cocktail. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, Tiffany, it's been a fun ride, and um, I look forward to uh, introducing the audience to uh, to our new co hosts. Um, and so I'll be doing that over the course of the next couple of weeks. But thank you to again to our audience, and thanks for listening to SCOTUS One Hundred and One. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101, or email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans. Leah Rampersad and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.